Hello, hello, and welcome all to Hope You Are Well. This is Harry Stott for Barcelona Metropolitan. We're back with another of our weekly podcasts, returning this week for Un Tayat Am, a coffee with someone doing something interesting or noteworthy here in Barcelona. Now, how many of you listening to this speak more than one language? You'd imagine quite a few. If you can understand me, there's a good chance you speak English. And given a lot of you will be expats living in Barcelona, no doubt you'll speak another one too. However, no matter how proud you are of your multilingual abilities, our guest this week is probably going to put you to shame. Alex Rawlings is a British language education ambassador and twice published author who was crowned the UK's most multilingual student in 2012. He won that accolade by being able to speak a quite staggering 15 languages. These days, Alex is a freelance creative content specialist and he's been living in Barcelona for the past year or so. You can find all his details if you want to get in touch on the webpage alongside this podcast. We recorded this chat about a month or so ago in a cafe on Passage de Gracia and it really was very enjoyable. Alex spoke really eloquently and directly about the challenges faced by language learners around the world today and you can really hear his passion for celebrating even the nichest of tongues. We talked about how Alex got the language bug, and we discussed his two excellent books on language learning. I learned a lot of new things about dialects, idioms, how language is informed by culture in general, and we even got to do a little bit of Brexit bashing towards the end, which is always very cathartic. I'll be back at the end to wrap things up, but now, without further ado, here is Umtayat Am. Alex Rawlings. Alex, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for uh, for coming on. And I hope my um, my mixing of Spanish and English there isn't isn't winding up the uh, linguist inside you too much. No, please mix. I think <laughs> <laughs> mixing is an important part of learning languages. Oh, it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well. First of all, I think the thing I've got to address just for my I've got to address just for my personal curiosity is the uh, the polyglottal elephant in the room, so to speak. So you speak fifteen languages. What are they? Um, so my first language is English. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm from the UK, but my mum is from Greece, so I had Greek growing up as well. Um, and then the others would be German, Russian, Spanish, Catalan, French, Dutch, Afrikaans, Portuguese, Italian, Serbian, Hungarian. Hebrew, Yiddish. There's always is that fifteen. I always kind of <laughs> I wasn't. Counting. I lose. <laughs> I should have been counting. <laughs> yeah. But, but no. So, so generally, it's kind of European languages that I've, I've been learning. Um, and I studied languages at university. I did German and Russian. Um, and then now I've lived in Barcelona for about a year. So that's where I've been studying Catalan. But I did Spanish at school. And yeah, it's always just been kind of a slightly obscure hobby of mine to learn languages. Um, but then it's also started to open a lot of doors. So um, I kept up with it. And I kept going. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And what do you think gave you the language bug then? I mean, you're bilingual then with Greek. Yeah, so I mean, um, so my mum was really keen that I'd grow up bilingually with English and Greek. um, But I, as a kind of kid growing up in London, was never that interested in speaking Greek. And uh, whenever she'd speak to me in in Greek, I'd always reply in English. And whenever she'd get any of my relatives to speak to me in Greek, I'd always reply in English. And she kind of thought that I just wasn't picking up um, Greek at all. So um, basically one year when I was eight, my mum took me to Greece for three months for a whole summer and uh, basically said, well, now you've got two choices. You either spend the whole time with me 
or you go and try and make some friends with local kids. And um, that was the first time that I really understood that, you know, languages weren't just like a weird game that my mum was playing with me. Um, it was actually a way to connect with people that you have things in common with and that you can share your life with, but are otherwise separated by not having a language in common. Um, so basically by the end of that summer, I was speaking Greek. The Greek that I've been kind of passively absorbing from my mum all that time just started to come out and became activated. And um, also I just realized that languages could offer you a better life. They could offer you kind of opportunities to have more friends, to have more freedom and to kind of broaden your horizons. So ever since then, I just sort of kept going. And do you think with children of a certain age, there is then a little bit of pushback sometimes with wanting or not wanting to, to, to speak another language at sort of a young age? Yeah, I think... Um, well, I mean, if I speak from my own experience, I mean, I just didn't see the point of it. I, I just thought, you know, why bother? Why, why would you want to be different, you know? Um, I just wanted to fit in with, like, everybody else at school and just speak English. There was no need for me to speak that Greek. But the moment that a need presented itself, I started to understand why. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of parents who are trying to raise their kids bilingually struggle for a couple of reasons because... First of all, there's a very kind of skewed perception of what bilingualism is and what multilingualism is. And people have this kind of idea that to be bilingual means to speak two languages equally all the time. And anybody who is bilingual will tell you that that's never the case. And you have stronger languages and you have topics that you're more comfortable talking about in one language but not another. And definitely with kids, I mean, it's very often, like, common to see that kids take a long time to start speaking the other language, even if they understand it, even if they respond to it. So... Um, I don't know. I mean, I think everybody's on their own path with these things. And I think that the really good thing that my mum did is that she pushed me, but mainly she gave me options. She gave me the option to come bilingual. And then I chose to take her up on that. And I chose to do that. And that's why it worked. Whereas if I'd been forced or if I'd been kind of coerced into it or if it became a bit of a chore, I know that I would have rebelled and not done it. And from there, from learning Greek, you then... Did you become fascinated by languages in a kind of linguistic sense, or was it I was it I want to learn this now, I want to learn this now, I want to learn this, or was it the kind of the background of it? I mean, to an extent, I mean, I think languages are interesting, and mm. I think languages can tell us a lot about the world and tell us a lot about history. Uh, there's an awful lot of information that's sometimes buried within certain words, certain expressions, certain you know, so-called mistakes that people make that are not recognized by formal language. But linguistics is never really what kind of got me out of bed in the morning. I was always much more interested in what you could do with languages. And what I perceived languages as offering was this chance to just kind of broaden your horizons and explore different worlds and see different ways of living your life. And I'm curious how, now that you do speak 15, how do you, how do you conceive of them in your head, you can't compartmentalize them. I kind of have this idea that it's always like a Sherlock Holmes mind palace that you have to kind of sit back into and sort of file through and filter through if you want to go and sort of choose a specific one that you're yeah. going to speak. I think um, you have active languages and you have inactive languages. Right. I mean, that's how or kind of dormant languages is how I'd put it. So I have languages that I use every day at the moment and those ones are at the front of my mind. So that would be obviously English and Spanish and Catalan mm -hmm. and Greek. Um, and also recently I've been dealing a lot with German and Russian. Um, the rest of the languages are still there, they're not dead, but it often takes a bit of a while to reactivate them. So the other day I had dinner with some people from Morocco who wanted to speak French, and I think it took me about an hour and a half to warm my French back up to a level where I felt comfortable 
doing it. But then this is also part of the challenge. I think when you learn languages, you're really aware of how much you don't know as opposed to how much you know. And you're really aware of how much you feel like you can't say. And successful language learners are the people who embrace that and the people who don't shy away from making mistakes, don't shy away from making imperfections, but see that as an opportunity to learn. So you just have to kind of go for it, basically. And I think there is something as English speakers, we're almost unlucky in some way that we're not, we're not forced into a situation where we have to learn another language like many European uh, younger people feel, not they're forced to, but they feel like they almost have to. So do you think that's a big challenge then for the UK language education? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, so it's interesting that whenever there's an, a successful example of, of bilingualism or multilingualism in Europe, what people are really talking about is English. Um, what you do, what you see in Sweden, for example, where, like, I don't know, over 90% of school kids leave school proficient in English, and that's heralded as a good result. What you don't see is anything like that for French or anything like that for German. Like, Swedish kids are not interested in learning other languages to the same extent that they're interested in learning English. And the reasons for that are quite simple. I mean, English has a really powerful, really um, persuasive and really kind of far-reaching cultural capital behind it that makes it attractive and makes people want to learn it. And other languages kind of struggling to compete with that. I mean, in the UK, um, we're similarly influenced by American culture growing up as you would be in Europe. It's just that we already speak English, but we've adopted Americanisms, we've adopted turns of phrase, we've adopted items of vocabulary that our parents didn't say just as a result of that. And I think it's, it's a similar effect, basically. So... I see it as a fundamental kind of a cultural issue that um, English is extremely powerful in terms of its, its cultural potential, in terms of its reach, and it's very hard for other languages to compete against that and for young people in the UK and also in Europe to see the value of learning other languages. But then what studies happened recently, which is quite interesting, is I think we've seen a resurgence of Spanish and uh, we've started seeing like Spanish music everywhere. Like I was in an airport in Brussels the other day and uh, they were playing reggaeton in the departure lounge, which is like unthinkable five years ago. Um, and also you've got Netflix opening its new offices in Madrid to kind of make this huge investment into Spanish language content, but also content from other languages as well. And I think it's actually really good news for people who care about languages because there's gonna be a new generation of people growing up seeing other languages kind of looking cool, like seeing like um, TV series in Spanish and German and whatever. And I think the idea that in order to be successful, in order to be cool, you have to speak English is not going to be as powerful as it once was. Right. So it's as much a case of other language, other languages need to attain that kind of cultural capital as it is. I mean, would you say there's a fault in in language education in the UK that means that people are not learning other languages to the extent that they are able to in European countries? I mean, I think there's, we could definitely be teaching languages better, but I don't think that the, bl the blame for Britain's monolingualism lies with language teachers right. or with schools. It lies with our attitudes as a society to other cultures, our failure to value even languages that are spoken indigenously in our own country, like Welsh or Gaelic or Irish. Um, and ultimately, we've also got to be mindful of the fact that English is a super powerful language in terms of cultural capital, and we just can't compete yet on that same scale. 
And you mentioned there Netflix moving into Spanish language programming and yeah, the, the new sort of renaissance, I guess, of Spanish music. And it's a, it's a mantra you often hear um, from people learning a new language is that listen to lots of music in that language, watch lots of films in that language, lots of TV shows. It, how much does that actually help in your view? I think it's hugely important. I mean, because just thinking about my own experience in Greece, like I could learn Greek when I saw the point of it. Right. And the point of um, engaging with content, or I mean, let's call it content, we're talking about music, yeah. talking about films. The point of engaging with that stuff is to basically be distracted from the fact that you're studying the language. And, you know, I don't want to study all of these words because I want to master the subjunctive in Spanish. I want to be able to master the subjunctive in Spanish so I can talk about my aspirations and dreams for the future in Spanish, you know. So there's just there's got to be a point to everything that we're doing and uh, there's got to be a context and there's got to be a relevance and what let's say content can provide is it, it can provide that relevance and it can make it clear why it's important to learn the language and study it which is because you're finding out about the world and you're finding out about the people in it and you're interested in going on that journey is that something that you touch on in your first book how to speak any language fluently to a degree i mean in that book i talk a lot about the necessity of kind of real context for learning vocabulary um, and for motivating yourself to do it. But that book's more like a handbook about how you would learn a language if you were just going to go about doing it. In my second book, um, I talk a bit more about the relevance of culture, the relevance of the language. So that's um, called From Amaret to Jal, Bizarre and Beautiful Words from Europe. And that's basically a list of, of um, funny words mm -hmm. that um, basically are missing from the English language, concepts that we understand, but we don't have a word that captures them, but that do exist in other languages. Yes, I've been, I was reading that over, over the past week, actually. And how, I mean, how did you go about then compiling nearly 200 pages of, of word translations? Is that from your experience, or was that very much a case of I've got to sit down and find these? Well, I mean, some of them, for example, with Greek, it was really obvious to me which words I knew existed in Greek that didn't exist in English, because I've known where I felt like it's easier to say something in Greek than in English. Um, but with the other ones, I kind of just had to find people and say, where were your pain points learning English? You know, so you're a Swedish speaker. What are the words that you miss now that you speak English that you still feel like Swedish could, could get, but English can't? So it was a really collaborative process, consulting a lot of people along the way and kind of, and it was really fun actually to hear people's stories and to hear people's, you know, little anecdotes about when they just hit this wall of not being able to express something that's really natural to be able to do in their own language. Yeah, there was a lot in the in the first chapter of that, um, yeah, where you sort of discuss things more generally. Which I there were some really sort of interesting linguistic phenomenons, I guess you'd call them, within there. And there's one where you talk about foreign foreign speakers learning their own English and and not learning this conception of English that, as a native English speaker, you have. And so, do you think? the way in which, say, a Spanish speaker has learned their own English, as you refer to it, do you think that almost develops into the extent that it becomes a dialect, in a way? Yeah, I mean, um, is, this is definitely something that happens. Um, Spanish English is a thing. I don't know, like, I mean, living here, you will encounter words that don't exist in English, but are used in English, like inscription. Mm -hmm. Like, inscription is when you write something in a rock, but here it means registration, because it means inscripción. Um, and... 
all I mean, there are all sorts of expressions that people just literally translate into English and then everyone does it. So we just pick it up and then I hear native English speakers doing it as well. So I guess you could call that a dialect. But um, for me, I mean, what's interesting for me, for it about me is that I think when every language that you speak, you've got to find yourself in that language. You've got to find your personality and you've got to find a way to make the language um, reflect the color of who you are. And um, sometimes literally translating things that you'd say in your native language into the language you're learning is the way to do that, you know, and that's, I think, what we see. And another thing you touch on there is idioms, which also feeds into some of the, some of the, the words that then come later. Um, but one thing you say about idioms, which I found really interesting, is that how they're so much a product of their culture. So you say that Greek idioms focus on the sea, Rush, Russian idioms tend to focus on this idea of mysticism. And I wonder what you think Spanish idioms, what would they, what's their sort of context, what would they focus on? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it's hard to talk about it objectively, isn't it? Because I mean, I can just think about the idioms that I know. Um, I think one of my favorite things about Spanish language is that it's, um, it doesn't shy away from the vulgar. You know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's genitalia, there's, there's a lot of swear words being thrown in, and it's extremely colourful language from that point of view. Um, and I think part of the fun of learning Spanish is that you've got to throw away your inhibitions a little bit and just be comfortable saying things that in English would sound pretty rude, but in Spanish are quite acceptable. And then in English, I mean, I was trying to think about this myself, and I was thinking... It's just got to be some sort of cynicism or, or just some sort of mis misery behind, yeah. behind it. But, um, yeah, a, a sort of idioms in English, what do you think they're the product of? It's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I think what, what characterises the way we speak English in the UK, and you really notice this when someone who's not from the UK speaks English, is that we, we play a lot with understatement. Um, so if we don't want to do something, we say we don't really feel like it. Right, we kind of we really we avoid the point a lot, and you know we, we speak with a nuance basically that means that we never say things straight out. We avoid the point. When you learn Spanish, you have to get used to being very direct. Yeah. You know, even just if you think about ordering. Whereas in English, you have this really long, convoluted um, construction to basically convey that you would quite like something. Mm -hmm. In Spanish, you just say "give me." Yeah. Right. And it's not rude. It's just seen as completely transactional, completely kind of honest to do that. But I think, I, know, I mean, when, when I first came here and when friends of mine come to visit here and they encounter that for the first time, they're quite taken aback because they, they find it quite brash. Because from an English speaking context, we just don't do that. So, yeah. so I think I'd, it's, it's difficult to say about idioms because I think there are very few idioms that actually span the whole population of English speakers in the world. I mean, the idioms can often be very relevant to a certain town or a certain region, but I'd characterize the way of speaking English idiomatically as always going for understatements and always avoiding the point. As another section of that book, Amoretta da to Zhao, Zhao, Zhao mm -hmm. is where you talk about the Balkan languages and you actually describe them, the difference between the Balkan languages as like the difference between Irish Irish English and American English and South African English, are they, are they really that similar? Yeah, I mean, until the breakup of Yugoslavia, they were one language, okay. classified as one language. Right. Um, and nowadays, when you go to the former Yugoslavia, you can speak the same language in Zagreb as you would in Belgrade, as you would in Bosnia, and people understand you and people respond. Mm -hmm. And um, 
it's a really interesting, because he's returning to this idea of dialect and, and, you know, what's the difference between a dialect and a language? You have a really good example with uh, what was called Serbo-Croat and is now called Serbian, Croatian, Bosnian, and sometimes also Montenegrin, of one language with four distinct dialects, which now has become classified as four languages. And um, the differences are quite arbitrary to begin with, but gradually they are moving apart. And um, Croatian in particular has um, taken on a whole new set of vocabulary that kind of um, is much purer, some people might say, with much more Slavic roots and kind of tried to remove Turkish loan words and things like that, whereas Serbian still uses Turkish loan words quite a lot. Bosnian's a bit of a mix. And then there's also grammatical differences as well. Mm. Um, but the point is that at one point this was all one language and you know, um, the differences about how you form the past tense would be the, like the differences in English between saying I have got or I have, right. where in some places you say one, some places you say the other. But now these have become formalized. And now if you took a Croatian exam, one dialect would be classified as wrong, whereas in the past it would be accepted as a variation. And you mentioned loan words there, which is yeah another interesting phenomenon for sure. And something big between European languages especially. Are there any languages which are kind of devoid of those loan words? Maybe something which is very localized. I mean, I was thinking maybe something like Basque or maybe not Catalan because of the links with Spanish, but yeah, any languages which loan words are not really a thing? I don't think so. I mean, I think all languages borrow from each other and all languages are influenced by each other. And um, there are attempts by certain academics and journalists and politicians to purify language. But language is a living thing. Language is something that evolves and that develops with time. So you can't keep influence out. And if anything, the fact that languages do adopt, do adapt and they do adopt foreign loanwords is a sign that the language is alive. So I, I see it as a good thing in many ways. Um, to have a language with absolutely no loanwords whatsoever, you'd have to have a population that is completely isolated. Uh, with absolutely no contact with the outside at all. And nowadays, that's nearly impossible. Yeah. In the past, I think you'd see it more. I mean, so one of the, re for example, if you look at a map of Switzerland, um, there are different dialects of German in different valleys, right? You can actually draw the dialectical map along the geographical map and see how kind of a river here means that this vowel is pronounced differently on this side to that side. Um, and that shows that kind of in the past, communities were much more separate and there was much less contact between them but nowadays with with roads with planes with trains with the internet and everything we're talking to each other and so it's much harder to you know keep language in isolation in that way yeah and i suppose the the famous example of a language where at a state level anyway they tried to keep it to keep it pure and to prevent loan words i suppose and especially in terms of english is is french sure which then I would then have the effect of actually stopping specific dialects within France from developing. Yeah, I think, um, and of course, it's not been a success. I mean, there, yeah. are, there are loads of English words in French. Mm -hmm. Even if they're frowned upon, they're there and they're used. Um, but, for, I mean, France is always kind of seen as the example of quite a kind of let's say, linguistically austere country. They, they, they really, there's a centralized body that regulates the language and people take great pride in, in speaking French, which is all great. Um, I'm very in favor of people being proud of their language. But the, the problem, as I see it with France, is that France has a terrible record with regional languages. Um, 
if you compare, for example, the Basque country in Spain with the Basque country in France, you know, the, the levels at which people can speak Basque on the French side of the border is significantly lower than in Spain. And uh, Occitan is nowhere near as, um, as prominent as Catalan is in Barcelona today. I mean, and even, I mean, from what I've been told anecdotally, I think there's even kind of a hierarchy of accents which exist in the UK as well, but I think we've tried to, to deal with it. Where if you speak in France with a southern accent, that's really looked down upon, and the only real way to speak properly is the Parisian accent. So, I don't know, there's a kind of homogenization attempt with French going on in France, which is quite unnatural for a language, because as we say, languages are like living organisms. They change, they adapt, and, and they respond to their environments. Um, which I don't think is a good thing. But at the same time, I do think it's a good thing that the government has tried to promote French and encourage people to speak it and encourage people to listen to it on the radio and things like that. So, so uh, to, to an extent, I'm on the fence about <laughs> it, right? I, I want people to speak languages other than English, but I don't think that France is necessarily the best example about how to go about it. Right, sure. And then, so going back to your, your first book, How to Speak Any Language Fluently, what are your sort of biggest tips from that for speeding up learning a language? Um, I think there's three things that you need to have in place to be able to learn a language. You need to have a strong motivation um, and you need to have a lot of different reasons for wanting to learn the language. Um, so, for example, I'd recommend writing a list of 10 distinct reasons before you start out as to why you want to do it, because there's going to be a point where you lose motivation, where you lose momentum, and you're going to want to refer back to that to, to get back on track. The other thing is kind of like you need to have your resources there. You need to understand kind of how you can have contact with the language and, and what each resource is going to bring to you. So would that be a language teacher, would that be a language school, uh, would that be an exchange, or would it just be going to the cinema and watching a film with Spanish subtitles and making an effort to read the subtitles? I mean, anything could be a language learning resource as long as you kind of understand what's at your disposal and how you can use it. And then the final thing is time. So I think there's kind of a critical three to six month period when you first start out where you need to kind of have contact every single day with the language. You need to be studying it because essentially we're building um, habits here. We're building, you know, um, brand new patterns of behavior that need to be sustained and need to be consistent. So if you just try and do 10, 15 minutes minimum every day of kind of reminding yourself of some verbs, reminding yourself of some vocabulary, you know, that's on a really good path. In terms of learning vocabulary, there's this theory that you need to be exposed to a word seven times on average before you see it. So if you manage to do 10, 15 minutes of study every single day for a week, you will give yourself that seven exposures that you need. That means that the word will stick in your mind. So it's just important to be consistent. Um, but it's also important to be realistic in terms of where you're hoping to get. Because um, like I say, I think so many people are paralyzed by the misconception that bilingualism means speaking two languages at the same level. And you just can't make up the time um, that you've been speaking your native language for. Um, but if you kind of adjust your expectations to feel comfortable with the fact that you can still make a lot of progress and you can still get to a point where you feel comfortable expressing yourself, it may not be perfect, but you can be functional and you can be transactional and then you can get to interactions, then you can get to expressing feelings, then I think the whole journey is a lot less traumatic and you kind of, you beat yourself up less and you enjoy it a lot more. And just on a practical level that, what are some good techniques for... For, for studying, would it be writing out verbs and writing out conjugations? That seems like maybe a bit of an antiquated way of doing things. Are there any more modern ways that you would suggest? Um, 
Well, I think, so I learn just by jumping in and just by kind of making mistakes and identifying what I can't say. I mean, I think the most memorable way to remember a word or remember grammar, whatever it is, is actually just to go out there and really embarrass yourself. Um, because, you, I mean, those those times, they just stay in your head really, really clearly about when you use the wrong word at the wrong point and then a group of strangers laughed in your face, you know? And if you just kind of use that as a as an opportunity to, to learn, it's going to be really, really powerful. Um, but basically, I think the, the important thing is to keep what you're learning as closely related to the context that you want to use it in as you can. So, for example, don't just learn words in isolation. Learn them in phrases that you'd actually like to say, you know. So don't just learn the word for table. Learn the word for do you have a table for two, you know. And immediately you've got nuggets that you can just deploy as and when you need to. Um, another thing I do sometimes is kind of like a vocabulary mind map where I take a particular topic or I take a particular scenario or a situation and I write out everything that I need to be able to say or want to be able to say to cover that topic or cover that scenario. And then very clearly, I, very quickly, I identify where the gaps are that I need to fill. So then I'd go back to a dictionary and kind of look up the words to fill those gaps and um, work out what it is that I can't say and what it is that I'd like to be able to say to sound more fluent and sound more confident. Now, I saw recently you were given the honor of speaking at the second EU Education Summit. Can you tell me how you got involved with that and what you did there? Yeah, I mean, um, I was invited basically as an ambassador for multilingualism to go and participate in a panel um, on the subject of whether language learning in a school is a luxury or a must. And um, it was super interesting actually to be at an EU summit where every single country was represented there minus the United Kingdom. And uh, we were basically talking about the problems that schools across Europe face in order to um, teach languages, or my particular panel. Um, and I think, I mean, if you ask me the question of if, if language learning at school is a luxury or a must, I'm obviously going to say it's a must. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. that well, multilingualism and learning languages is basically an essential part of European life. Like we're, we're extremely multilingual continent and to live here, you need languages to get by. Um, there'll be people who tell you that you only need English, um, but as any native English speaker will tell you, that only gets you so far. Yeah. Um, I think in order to be able to empathize with other people, in order to be able to truly understand them on their terms rather than on our terms, we have to learn their languages and we have to put ourselves in their shoes. And there's nothing more humbling or nothing that puts, you, puts all of that stuff in greater perspective than actually learning a foreign language because... As we all know, when we start out, we, we don't take to it quickly. It's, it's a difficult process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially when it, when it comes to conversations about things like immigrants learning languages in the UK and, and people not making an effort and that kind of thing, I often think that those criticisms come from people who've never put themselves through that process themselves, who just cannot empathise with what it's like to be a 19-year-old Polish teenager who comes over to the UK to work in Costa Coffee and be overwhelmed by language and dialects and things you've never heard before. People just can't put themselves in that situation because in the UK we don't learn languages. And I, I think that's a problem. Yeah, I think that um, sort of dichotomy almost between luxury and a must. I mean, for a lot of English speakers, especially those who, who are never going to live abroad, there is a pretty strong argument to say that speaking another language ahead of, ahead of other things is a bit of a luxury. So... I mean, what do you think needs to happen to change, 
to change the conception for English speakers that learning another European language or learning any other language will actually benefit them? Well, we now have pretty convincing um, science behind the idea that multilingualism and bilingualism is extremely good for the brain. Um, I, a friend of mine is a neuroscientist at University of Edinburgh called Thomas Back, and he describes language learning as like a full-body workout for the brain. He says there's nothing that quite challenges it in so many different directions, in terms of memory, in terms of production, but also the social skills required to speak a language and to understand it and, and receive it. Um, and, you know, I mean, as the rest of the world learns other languages, and in particular English, as basically bilingualism becomes the world everywhere except in the English-speaking world, the rest of the world is going to be enjoying those neurological cognitive benefits while we're left behind. And, um, I mean, that on its own should be enough reason to understand that we need to learn languages. If in the same way that we exercise, we need to exercise our brains. And language learning is the best way to do that. Um, the other thing is, I mean, we're facing interesting times as a country. And, I mean, um, many of the people of my generation, I'm 28, but many of my friends... Um, are thinking about possibly leaving the UK for a bit and going and starting a life elsewhere. And um, they're very quickly coming across some barriers that I don't think they ever thought they would. And they're quickly realizing that actually, I mean, living in Barcelona without speaking Spanish is extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you can have an English-speaking job, as I have, but when someone comes in to change the light bulbs or you need to pop out to the post office, you need to have any contact with anyone, you need Spanish, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's pretty much true everywhere, even in Berlin. I mean, it's very difficult to navigate it with English alone. I mean, to, just to deal with the bureaucracy, to be able to understand your own water bill, just to feel comfortable with that life, you need other languages. And I think people of my generation are realizing that the fact that they never paid other languages attention when they were at school and they were younger has now seriously limited their opportunities to travel and live abroad as adults. Um, so I think we, you know, we, we, need, we need to keep our minds open and we need to keep our options open. And, and for me, languages and speaking other people's languages is the way to do that. Now, speaking of limits to, um, well, Brits especially, wanting to move abroad and to, and to go and live and experience another culture, we are having this conversation with the backdrop of Brexit looming in well, supposedly looming in the, in the next couple of weeks. And I think actually the first time I, I, I came across you was for a piece in The Observer where you talked about the fact that you left the UK was because of the, the atmosphere that Brexit had, had produced in the country. Is that really a, a feature of why, of why you wanted to leave the UK? I think it was a big... Um cloud over my head um, dealing with the fact that the country that I was born in and grew up in essentially was not interested in the European project and many people were talking about Brexit as a way of dismantling it. Um, you know, I've got immigration in my family history. We've always been in different countries and essentially the European identity has been something that's allowed me to be who I am. And um, when the vote came through and when some of the rhetoric started happening from the government, you know, it just, I felt very uncomfortable living in the UK. And I felt very uncomfortable kind of facing my European colleagues every day and listening to the anxiety that they were suffering for years that was all basically as a result of political decisions that the government had made and that voters had made. I mean, I just, I really felt like 
the UK didn't feel like it was in a very good place last year when I just decided to leave. And I think it was actually the moment when I was reading through the government's own reports about what a no-deal Brexit would look like, you know, and stockpiling and all this kind of thing, where I was just was, was faced with a really simple choice of, is this something that I really want to put myself through when I've got the option to go? I speak languages, I know people in other countries, I can have a life abroad. It's now or never. And without wanting to go too far down the Brexit rabbit hole, because we could here be, be here for another hour, um, in terms of language learning specifically, I mean, the effects on English speakers and Brits being able to speak European languages, Brexit is going to be hugely damaging, surely? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to predict with much certainty what it's actually going to look like. I think, um, I don't know if leaving the European Union itself will damage it, but what will damage it is kind of a hardening of those opinions that English is the only language that you need, that we don't need to travel to other places. And I think if we really do start to close ourselves up as a society and as a country, which I think there's a strong possibility of, then language learning will suffer. The other interesting thing that's happened, I think, since 2016 is that people have become very aware of the fact that this is now a risk. And I think people who don't agree with the direction the country's going in have become more conscientious than ever of the need to you know, represent the UK properly abroad and, and to kind of... I think there has been kind of a surge in, in language learning to an extent. When I was working for a language learning company back in London, um, and we noticed a big rise in, in kind of user numbers immediately following both Brexit and the election of Trump. Um, so, you know, in some ways, I guess the silver lining would be that the awareness rises and people understand what they stand to lose as a result of these things, but that's not to be kind of... Um, that's not to say that we don't have to worry and we don't have to, um, you know, take this very seriously as well. Now, we've talked about the fact that the world is getting more multilingual, but in a sense, it tends to only be English for a lot of people. What do you think the future for more niche languages is really going to look like? Will, is it sort of just going to be more homogenization towards English? Or do you think... Um, globalization is going to change things, so there'll be a new language which might become the, the dominant kind of business tongue. I think, um, so this is, 2019 is the UNESCO Year of the Indigenous Language, um, which is, has been a long time coming because, you know, I mean, minority languages and indigenous languages around the world are suffering and they are under ever-increasing threat of irrelevance, essentially. Um, I... I mean, I mean, what's the future going to look like in terms of languages? I think English probably is here to stay. I think um, we will also see other European languages rise in significance, like we're already seeing with Spanish, and to, to an extent at which German's already a really relevant language for a lot of Eastern Europe and places like that. Um, but I think if we're not very conscientious of the need to protect minority languages, and, and, and not just of the need, but actually the value that having linguistic diversity brings to this world, we're at risk of losing that. Um, you know, I mean, for example, a friend of mine is a language revivalist, um, and he's based out in Australia, and he works with Aboriginal communities running workshops at reviving Indigenous Aboriginal languages that have been lost because the speakers have died out or the, there was very deliberate kind of education policies in Australia in the 20th century to stop children from learning their mother tongues. Um, and since he's been running these programs over the last 20 years, uh, he's noticed an enormous improvement in kind of rates of diabetes, of depression, even of alcoholism amongst 
indigenous peoples of Australia who speak their ancestral language, you know. So there's this immense value of, of people being able to speak their ancestral language, to be able to speak the language of their parents, of their grandparents, of being able to understand even what the place names that they live in mean. Um, and, you know, I think diversity is hugely important to me. And I, th I think, you know, it's not uncommon to see um, pots of money at checkouts or gas stations, wherever it is, collecting money for endangered animals. But we haven't quite won the argument yet or convinced people that endangered animals are really important and biodiversity is important, but so is human diversity. Mm -hmm. And um, Welsh is important, Basque is important, Catalan is important. And without an effort and without political will, these languages will disappear. and We will have a more homogenized and less diverse world, which I think will make us poorer. And for you personally, in the future, what language is next on your list then? <laughs> so I'm taking my Catalan exam uh, in November. Okay. Um, so I'm working on that at the moment just to kind of, you know, I think it's important to speak that language living here and, um, and speaking it and meeting people through speaking it has opened up whole worlds that I didn't expect I'd find here, which has been super exciting. Um, in terms of learning new languages, I mean, um, I have this kind of ongoing love affair with South Africa as a country because it's this incredible multilingual place and I really feel like I need to learn some Zulu and stuff for my next trip, so I'd like to do that. Um, I'd also love one day to finally sit down and learn Arabic. I'd love to learn Turkish. I mean, the problem is that once you start the list, yeah, it never ends. Because yeah. <laughs> each one of these languages is just, it's just a whole world. And yeah, it kind of yeah. feels difficult to say, well, I want to enter this world and not that world. But then there's only 24 hours in a day. And you need to spend eight of them asleep in order to be a healthy person. <laughs> so you're limited in terms of what you can do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I want to keep on with the languages that I've got. and want to keep strengthening them and doing more with them. And using them to kind of you know keep enriching my life and broadening my perspectives amazing well i think that'll do for today thanks so much for coming by alex thank you very much it's been a pleasure to be with you that was untayat am alex rawlings do hope you enjoyed it big thanks to alex for coming on he sounds like he's got a lot of very exciting things coming up in the pipeline and you can buy both of his books from all good shops and online. So check out his website for links to that. That is all for today. We'll be switching these podcasts to a much more leisurely two week schedule from now on. So do listen back to our previous episodes in the meantime, if you're missing us. The next episode will be on December 5th and it will be En Profundität, where we'll be looking at the upcoming election in the UK and what it all means for those of us living abroad. But until then, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again very soon. The music is No Frills Cumbia by Kevin MacLeod and licensed by Creative Commons. <laughs>